So we started off this morning with some Chicago gospel from Aretha Franklin. We just visited the desolation of West Texas. That's part of the mosaic of the American experience. That story about Bartolo, I love that story. I heard it on NPR a few weeks ago on my way home from work. And as soon as I got home, I made Joan listen to it, and then I sent a link to a couple of colleagues because it really struck me. And I love the story for many reasons. First, because it breaks stereotypes of hunters in West Texas, of Texans in general, of illegal immigrants. I love the story because Bartolo's journey was one that required many hands to get him from a hunting cabin to a construction job in Houston. Many people had a piece of tile, so to speak, that they fit together to create something that was more than the sum of its parts. But I also love this story because it's rare. Not rare because people rarely act kindly to strangers, or rare because of Bartolo's plan to return home after working in the U.S. for a while. The story is rare in the sense that those helpers along the way were able to see the results of their efforts on the lives of an individual. And they could imagine without too much of a stretch how their efforts affected the lives of Bartolo's family in Guatemala. For many of us, certainly for me, that kind of evidence of the impact of our efforts on individuals doesn't happen very often. We might see impacts on our organizations that we work for or contribute to, but not often on people. But that doesn't mean that impact doesn't exist. That's why I love to coach Special Olympics. As some of you know, I've been a basketball coach for Kelly's team for about 12 years. And every year, it seems, there's an individual whose life is transformed, literally transformed, by their experience in Special Olympics, their experience on the basketball court. And a few years ago, it was a boy named Dalton. Dalton was a middle schooler at autism, um, and, and his experience with basketball was the first time he played competitive sports. He was a gentle boy. He didn't understand that part of the game was taking the ball away from opponents, and they were trying to take the ball away from you. And he didn't understand that you needed to be aggressive to go after the rebound. And so he struggled for the first few weeks. But after about three or four weeks, he got it. And he turned out to be one of the best players on the team, whether that's relevant or not. Um, but, but he really got it. And his mom, at the end of January of that year, came to me and said, I've got to tell you about a conversation I had with his teacher. His teacher asked me what I had been doing differently with Dalton. And she was a little taken aback and concerned. And she said, why do you ask? And, and the teacher said, well, he's been very different at school lately. He's been engaging with his peers. He has more confidence. He's leaning in. He's getting things done. And he's generally much more successful than he had been. Well, his mom hadn't done anything different with him at home. But she attributed that change in Dalton to his experience in Special Olympics. And for a while, I took a lot of credit for that, um, if not verbally, then certainly in my mind. Um, after I was a coach, I taught him the game, I encouraged him, I made him feel respected. But I realized that I was only a small part of it, and more important was how his teammates interacted with him. They showed him respect and empathy, they valued, they valued 
him as an individual. They valued his ability rather than focusing on his disability. It took all of us, and of course his family and his teachers and his classmates and many others, to make that transformation in Dalton's life. And I'm happy to say that he has since um, become quite active in the arts community. Um, he's identify, he, identif- he identifies as D now and um, is really a leader in the community. So it's been really wonderful to watch and quite a success story, but not one that's unique. Everything that every one of us does, everything every day, has an impact. Sometimes it's big and direct, and sometimes it's small or remote. Sometimes it's intentional. But I would say more often than not, it's unintentional. Unintentional, remote, hidden, not very satisfying. It's certainly not the way that we're told organizations should be run. Good leaders have clear goals that are measurable, visible, evident. Our church does that too, right? What are the metrics of our success? Sunday service attendance, membership growth, pledges, loose plate collections. But these measures, as useful as they are, do they really get to what we as a collective, a unita- the univer- Unitarian Universalist Church of Loudoun, is achieving? And by the way, what are we trying to achieve? I imagine that's different for just about everybody here in the church. But the closest thing that we have to consensus on that are, are two things. One is the covenant that we read earlier. And the second is the UUA principles that are found on the back of the order of service. So let me take you there for a minute just as a reminder. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another, and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience, and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. That's a lot of words. Um, Thankfully, uh, Kate introduced us to the principles that they use with the kids downstairs. Some of you may remember seeing this, um, which is a lot less words and, and for a lot of folks, a lot more understandable. And here they are. Each person is important. Be kind in all you do. We're free to learn together and search for what is true. All people need a voice. Build a fair and peaceful world. And we take care of the earth. So if the first one didn't work for you, maybe the second will. So let me take you back to the UA principles on the back of the order of service. At the top it says, we covenant to affirm and promote. What does that mean? Well, affirm, I think, is the easy part, right? We can nod our heads and say, right on. We agree with that, and that's what we want to do. Promote calls us to action. Promote calls us to impact. Impacting the world in those various different ways. And that's a lot more difficult. 
Um, back in October, I was interviewing for a, uh, with a headhunter for a job that I found quite interesting. And quite often, and, and I kind of prepare when I interview for the first question, which is, tell me about your experience and how it's relevant to the job. So she threw me a bit of a curveball. And instead of asking that question, she said, tell me about yourself. And so I just kind of started riffing and I started talking about how I grew up, which is always a bit of a risk, right? Well, it started when I was three years old. And, um, and 20 minutes later, they're ready to send you out the door. But I, I just started talking about how I grew up. I grew up in upstate New York in a small town. I was a son of a school teacher and an engineer. I had three sisters. And I mentioned that all four of us, almost by accident, followed careers that were in some way of service to others. My oldest sister went into the Peace Corps right after college. She's now a university professor. My second sister is a nurse practitioner. My youngest sister is a physical therapist. And for a while, I was the black sheep of the family because I worked for an oil company. Um, and then about 15 years ago, I made a transition from that to corporate sustainability and then on to focusing on climate change mitigation. But the interviewer asked me what it was about my upbringing that had taken us all in the direction of service to others. And I said I wasn't sure. I don't think my parents ever explicitly told us that our chosen career should be in service to others. What they did was they provided examples for us. They volunteered at church regularly. They were engaged in the community. They pitched in when they, when they could. My dad was on the school board. My dad actually, with about a dozen other guys, rebuilt a house that had been burned down by a fire um, over the course of a summer for one of the folks in town that he didn't know, by the way. But it was a kind of a, 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 an example of, of, uh, of doing. They provided quiet examples in one way or another that we all followed. And whether it was intentional or not, they both had, they all, they both had positive impacts on what all four of us would become. So for you parents out there, that might sound like Parenting 101, right? Setting good examples for your children to follow. But my point is this. I don't think my parents actually were intentional about it. It was just who they were and, and who they are. And my pro broader point is that their actions most likely had an influence on others well beyond our immediate family. And all of us, through our words and our actions, have influence on others beyond our immediate family. Everything we do, everything every day has an impact. Sometimes it's big and direct, and sometimes it's small or remote, but it is very real. When I was younger, not that long ago, I subscribe to the superhero theory of change. Namely, that the actions of one person, and I was hoping that would be me, can change the course of an individual or a community or the trajectory of climate change. And while that does happen, much more often it's the contributions of many, often small or remote contributions that create the future. Not life-changing moments, but a constant input of ideas, phrases, and provocations. The world and the individual is a mosaic made up of many different pieces of various shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities, creating something that is more than the sum of its parts. 
It's turning a bunch of tiles into a piece of art. I need to remind myself at times that this is the way the world works. As I mentioned earlier, I've been working on climate change mitigation in one form or another, or another for the better part of 20 years. And by all accounts, I haven't been very successful. After all, carbon emissions, CO2 concentrations, global temperatures are all significantly higher than they were 20 years ago. Severe weather, a key impact of climate change, which, by the way, will affect most, those that can afford it least. Severe weather is more frequent, more severe than ever, and our carbon budget is declining quickly. The time left to stabilize our climate before even more drastic and irreversible consequences is short. If my goal was and is to halt climate change, I've failed miserably. And some days I feel that way. It's easy for discouragement or even despair to creep into my brain, much as others, I'm sure, feel when they see unresolved challenges in their personal or professional lives. But more often, I recognize that the solution to climate change is a mosaic, like solutions to other problems, big and small, global and personal. It's the result of many pieces of different shapes, sizes, and colors, and I don't want to preach about climate change, but I think it's a good example of how the pieces need to fit together, regardless of what challenge you face. It requires policymakers to make difficult decisions about the balance between near-term and long-term, and advocates to educate and influence those policymakers. It requires grassroots activists to keep the issue at the forefront. It requires scientists that develop data about the causes and possible solutions, and other scientists that synthesize that data. It requires big thinkers and those that sweat the details. It requires journalists and other communicators. And it requires individuals who make choices about what they buy, who they buy it from, and what, what they do with it when they're done. None of the people that are working on this problem can do it on their own. They're all part of a a mosaic that is the solution. Much as any problem or opportunity that is faced by the world, our community, or our family requires a mosaic solution. Our church is certainly a mosaic. Last Sunday morning, Joan and I were reflecting on the stewardship party uh, at the party barn on Saturday night, which is the worst contradiction in terms I've ever heard. Um, but she observed a great sense of momentum that we were all feeling in this church. And she asked me why I thought that was and kind of who was responsible for it. And I thought about all the contributions that specific individuals have made over the last 12 months, but much earlier than that as well to kind of set the foundation. What I concluded was that it was all of us collectively that make this church go. We all make an impact on this church and the people that come through these doors, some visible and some invisible, but all very real. One of the things that makes this church special is the opportunity for us to hear many different voices. And, after, and each voice is a unique 
perspective, a unique style, and a unique message. I'm here, I am who I am today, in part because of the messages that I hear Sunday mornings here in this chapel. Let me give you some examples of the things that I've heard on Sunday mornings that have impacted my thoughts and my actions. Um, but before I do that, let me mention this pulpit. It was made last year by John Mark Power and donated to the church. We don't see John Mark here very often, but I certainly feel his presence every week when I look up and see this beautiful piece that I'm standing behind. Um, ironically, John Mark was in the first service. And so that was a good and a bad, because I say he doesn't come here very often. <laughs> but I was able to just acknowledge and appreciate what he's done um, to kind of set the tone um, for what we listen to every week. One of the first times I heard Michelle Seville in the pulpit, she shared a very personal story about doing the everyday things very well. And that made me think again about what it means to lead a good life. Reverend Alice preached a sermon titled, The Love of Language, The Language of Love. In that sermon, part of which discussed gender identity, she implored us to use language that respected how individuals see themselves. And I think about that every time I hear Aretha Franklin's song, Respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me. Dan Wesley recently talked about being out on a rescue mission in South Dakota in a snowstorm. And what I remember from that was that being patient, waiting, being still, is sometimes the best action that you can take. Gary Steinbach, just a few weeks ago, described his faith journey. And I will never again think about cremation in the same way. After Gary described a large environmental impacts of that process. Gary probably changed what will be my last act on this earth. Alan Benkowski, in that same service, gave us the simplest of advice from his father. Be nice. And every time I choose to, against taking action, against injustice, I hear Reverend Alice's words ringing in my ears, if we are complacent, we are complicit. So these memories are explicit. I can repeat the essence of that message back to you this morning. But there are many more that are not. I assure you that each of those are a part of the ideas, phrases, and provocations that have shaped me and probably many of you as well. Even when you don't think you're making a difference, you are making a difference. Faith has been defined as believing in something you cannot prove. We need faith that our good deeds, our positive words and actions, impact individuals and communities and the world at large, often in ways that we don't see and may never see, but are nonetheless real and important. Amen. Amen.